When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You're listening to episode 214 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined, as always, by the great Dan Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. How's it going, my friend? I'm doing okay. Congratulations on surviving Upfront Week. How how tired are you at this moment? Um, yeah, well, I've, I've been a day ahead all week, so that's how my brain is. In my, in my mind right now, it's Friday. I was going to say that, so that's a positive. So, like, you're ready for the weekend. No, I still have another day ahead. <laughs> then I got me. nothing. How how does it compare to the level of exhaustion that you would typically face uh, as we reach the end of Upfronts Week? It's significantly less, I think, because honestly, the focus is on everything but broadcast, and there's not as many announcements. There's still a lot of things that haven't been renewed or canceled yet. A lot of pilots that are still in contention, which we'll get to later in the episode. And then on top of that all, yeah, this is week three of the writer's strike, so... We have lots to cover, but before we get down to business, a correction. In the original version of last week's podcast, we referenced Ander creator Tony Gilroy ceasing producing duties after being called a scab on social media. He had previously ceased those responsibilities before being called out on social media. And now, time to get started in our usual place with headlines. Number one. Starting with the latest strike news, the Screen Actors Guild has called for a strike authorization vote as negotiations are poised to begin June 7th for a new contract with the AMPTP. The Actors Union's current contract, along with that of the Directors Guild, expires June 30th. And in fallout from the ongoing writer strike, the Daytime Emmys and the Peabody Awards have both been postponed. While the Tony Awards will go on, with a ceremony that will not be scripted in any way. So, yeah, lots going on in that segment, Dan. Indeed. Uh, the the Tony thing is particularly interesting because there had been the whole to-do last week about how they requested a waiver from the WGA and the WGA wouldn't give them the waiver. And then there was an outpouring of frustration slash disappointment from the theater community because the Tony Awards are a very, very interesting thing. If you look at the ratings for the Tonys on CBS, they're okay. You know, they're, they're not, they're not huge, but they're also not utterly disastrous. They're, they're, they're fine. But the impact that they have on Broadway and Broadway's solvency goes significantly beyond whatever the ratings are. Basically, Broadway depends on Tony Awards to keep shows alive because for the vast majority of the country, 
the Tony Awards are one of the few either times or signifiers that they get a sense of what is actually on Broadway, what it looks like. And so not having the Tonys would have been, uh, you know, a, a fairly uh, tragic situation for the Broadway community and for all of those shows that needed to survive. So ultimately, I believe they did not get the waiver, but what they did get was the WGA's promise that they won't picket the show, which is, of course, a fairly significant concession because basically people would not have crossed picket line to do anything with the show if there had been a picket line. So it was sort of the WGA's way of saying, look, we're not going to allow you to do a fully written, fully produced, normal Tony's telecast, but we also aren't going to cause you to basically destroy your industry by not being able to have the Tony Awards at all. So it was, to me, it feels like probably the right accommodation, because as has been the discussion the entire time tied to all of this, you know, if you're making accommodations left and right, the purpose of a, of a strike is purposeless. And it's, it's supposed to be a thing where it says, this is an inconvenience. This is getting in the way. On the other hand, it's the WGA saying, look, we understand, we understand solidarity. We understand, you know, how many of our, our, our members are probably playwrights and have written plays and have had stuff on Broadway and or would like to, you know, it's it, it to me, that seemed like a, a worthwhile accommodation on their part and probably a good piece of PR. They were able to make it clear, basically, that the reason why this whole thing had to happen in the first place was Paramount and the other AMPTP entities. Uh, it's it's their fault and <laughs> they didn't need it to happen. Uh, and to go back, of course, to the Screen Actors Guild uh, strike authorization vote. It's the exact same thing that we told you about the strike authorization vote when it was with the Writers Guild. This is not a a vote to strike. This is a vote to give the SAG negotiating board committee people to give them the leeway to say our members, 99% of them say we would like to strike. We are, we are prepared to strike if that is what the situation requires if we are unable to get the deal that we want. So again, this is not a, the actors are announcing that they're going out on strike. It's the actors saying this is an important tool in our negotiating arsenal. We would like to have that. So just wanted to make that clear to anyone who, who likes knowing what things mean. <laughs> um, continuing along with headlines, the Rose Byrne comedy physical will end with season three. It returns in August on Apple TV+. Plus. Of course, Rose Byrne has an entirely different Apple TV Plus show that's coming out next week, so there's still going to be plenty of Rose Byrne on uh, on Apple TV Plus. I'll, I'll review Platonic in next week's podcast. Haven't gotten to it yet. And speaking of TV shows coming to an end, the animated comedy Archer will end with its upcoming 14th season, which is a pretty impressive run. Yeah, FX given Archer a proper send-off, it sounds like, so... Yeah, take what you can get at this point. Elsewhere, Netflix has renewed Jenny and Georgia for its third and fourth seasons with a new showrunner attached. And the streaming giant has also handed out an early season six pickup for Virgin River. MGM Plus, which we're contractually obligated to remind you, is the artist formerly known as Epics, has picked up a King Arthur-based drama called The Winter King, because heaven knows what the world needed was for the story of King Arthur to finally be told. Production on the series has already wrapped. 
Yeah, that's a key point amid uh, the ongoing Writers Guild strike, which is continues to target um, productions that are not filmed on sound stages and filmed instead on location. That's a key point in the ongoing strike there. So the fact that this is already wrapped, it will give MGM Plus more originals coming to come this year. And speaking of the strike, it's been a busy week on the unscripted front for obvious reasons. Conan O'Brien is returning to Max with a four-part travel series that is inspired by his podcast. TBS, Conan O'Brien's former home, has revived The Joe Schmo Show with Kat Dealey set to host. Hulu has handed out an order for 20 more episodes of The Kardashians, taking it through its sixth season after the show was ordered for a whopping 40 installments. And last but certainly not least, ABC has handed out a series order for The Golden Bachelor, which will follow a man in his 60s looking for a second chance at love from a group of women also in the same age bracket. So, Dan, this one's been in the works for some time, but it's also, I mean, it feels like a punchline. Feels like a Billy on the street answer, like the Golden Bachelor. Like, you know what I mean? It feels like a punchline, but also it feels like an inevitability and whatever. It's <laughs> sure, why not? It sort of follows in line with various dating shows of the ilk, and so be it. I'm more interested in the revival of the Joe Schmo show, which also to some degree felt inevitable since uh Freebie just had a run of of buzz of some sort for uh, jury duty, which is basically the Joe Schmo show and the Nathan Fielder brand has been sort of varieties and variations on the Joe Schmo show for years. And Paul T. Goldman had a lot of DNA from the Joe Schmo show. So at a certain point, you might as well just bring back the Joe Schmo show. And so sure. Why not? Also, yay, Cat Dealey. <laughs> yeah. And also delayed reaction. Freebie. You'll you'll have you'll have another chance. Uh, I I would have stood back and given you the chance, but I know that uh, there will be another opportunity in Critics Corner to at least acknowledge the existence of Freebie again. Number two. Up second, you'll be surprised to know what this week's biggest story is. Well, the week's biggest story continues to be the ongoing strike, but the week's other biggest story is what this time of year would be the month's biggest story, the year's biggest story, the industry's biggest story. And yet this week, it's a little bit like, eh, it's a, definitely a thing that's happening and uh, definitely a thing that's not as exciting as it once was. Oh, yeah. Upfronts. So, Is that your voice? Dan? No, not Is really. It, it's, you it's doing a voice? Here? Just me trying to be enthusiastic about upfronts uh, after a week in which I tried on several occasions to find enthusiasm for upfronts and sat through, you know, two hours of Disney basically pretending that ABC didn't exist and a solid hour of Fox doing God only knows what Fox did in that upfront. Uh, so, yes, I'm just trying my hardest to to muster up enthusiasm but maybe i will find more enthusiasm when you break stuff down so we're gonna split up fronts coverage this week into two different segments and the, up first we're gonna discuss what we know so and of course we're gonna take a network by network approach so last week we already talked about cbs they're completely done so if you want to hear about them well go back and listen to episode 213 Starting first this week with ABC, they still have six pilots and they have gone to series with one of them, the Drew Goddard drama starring Caitlin Olsen that is now called High Potential. 
ABC also renewed The Connors, Not Dead Yet, and the bulk of its in-season scripted lineup, consisting of America's Funniest Home Videos, American Idol, The Bachelor, Bachelor in Paradise, Celebrity Jeopardy, Celebrity Wheel of Fortune, and Shark Tank. Then the network late last week canceled Alaska Daily, Big Sky, and The Company You Keep to make room on their schedule. So the schedule is also something that you're going to hear much more about later in this episode when we are joined by Ari Goldman, who is the head of scheduling for ABC. And ABC's schedule made headlines this week and was passed around frequently on Twitter by members of the Writers Guild because it's as I dubbed it, strike proof. And what does that mean? That means, well, it doesn't have any scripted originals airing new episodes in the fall. So Grey's Anatomy, new episodes? Nope. Not the Connors, new episodes? Nope. So they're holding all of that stuff for later in the season, pending the, the outcome of the strike. And instead, it's all unscripted. There is, however, one scripted series on the schedule, and it's repeats of Abbott Elementary. So... As you'll hear next, this is a really, honestly, it's a realistic approach to what viewers and ad buyers can expect going forward in the fall from ABC. Shifting to Fox a little bit, the network for the second year in a row declined to map out its fall schedule, but did release a slate of primetime fare that features near parity between the number of scripted series 13 and unscripted fare, also 13. On the latter side, the network added, We Are Family, a musical game show with hidden celebrities. Sure. But it's basically kind of, you know, the same idea. They're going to take a wait-and-see approach before they actually unveil anything. Last year, it was kind of like, yeah, fall schedule is not really important to us. And that's why it was left out of the upfront. And it's probably the same, you know, being true this year for Fox, too. But animated shows we know are on a different cycle, so it's highly likely that those will return in the fall. But yeah, Fox is, again, a big wait and see. Over at NBC, this is where things get a little bit more interesting. They've renewed Lopez versus Lopez for a second season and set a fall schedule that features three scripted shows, Dramas Found and The Irrational and Comedy Extended Family that were all produced before the writer's strike began on May 2nd. Those were shows that were picked up off cycle. And raise your hand if you've heard Dan and I talk about the importance of year-round development. And that's really coming in big here. I have, I have, I've heard, I've heard us talk about that. Sorry, yeah, I was just, I was just raising in. my hand. You told me to raise yes. my hand. <laughs> I was, I thought you had a question. No, 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 you said raise your hand. <laughs> so I was raising my hand. So basically what this is, what they did is they ordered these shows and like the found and the irrational found was supposed to be a mid season show. They decided to bump it until fall for obvious reasons. Now the irrational again was developed last year too. The Extended Family, which is the Michael Malley comedy starring John Cryer, again, was an off-cycle pickup. So they were able to cast, film, and finish seasons of three scripted originals. So they're going to have brand new scripted originals in the fall at a time when most other networks probably won't. Smart move on NBC's behalf. So the rest of NBC's schedule, however, not as smart because it's still business as usual. They're expecting five Dick Wolf shows that should a strike stretch well into summer as expected – are highly unlikely to be ready for a September premiere. So, yeah, so you win some, you lose some over at NBC. The CW is, I don't know how to describe this, Dan. Well, they've previously Head picked scratching. up. Yeah, it's, there's, there's a lot going on here, and, and, and there's a lot to digest because Brad Schwartz, who's the president of entertainment at the CW, and a former TV's top five guest from his time as president of Pop TV, 
And Dennis Miller, no, not that one, the, the president of the CW, took questions from press for about 30 minutes early Thursday morning. And the message was kind of all over the map. The first thing, let's start again with what we know. So CW has picked up the previously two produced seasons of the Courtney B. Vance drama 61st Street after AMC scrapped the series after it aired one of the two seasons that are in the can as part of its tax write-off plan. Brad Schwartz also picked up a spinoff of The Librarians and a few more foreign originals that the Next Star Controlled Network hopes to also co-produce future seasons of. So there's a show called Jane with Sophie Turner. That's, again, a foreign show that's been in the works that the CW said, hey, can we give you a little money and we'll maybe be co-producers on it and we can also air it domestically? Sure. Lower cost than, say, a new season of The Winchesters. So... For me, the big takeaway from Nexstar's upfront style press conference was that they want to broaden out the network's demo from 18 to 34 to 18 to 49. They believe that superhero shows, quote, had their time, and now they want to make shows that are profitable and age up the network to 18 to 49. So, and when I say that they want to make shows that are profitable, it's shows that are profitable for next star and not shows like Riverdale that were profitable for its previous for the, for the CW's previous owners CBS and Warner Brothers. So obviously, you know, Schwartz has experience doing this. He famously brought Shit's Creek to US audiences during his time running Pop. He doesn't really I asked him specifically, you know, because the CW has aired acquired content before kind of as filler either as a bridge to get from the end of the fall season into the summer season and and the summer season into fall. And they never rated. And Schwartz basically said that he sees no difference between homegrown originals like The Flash and All-American and foreign series that have already aired elsewhere. For, for me, and we've gotten some email from this from listeners too. Like, you know, we're not knocking the quality of these shows. We're knocking the I'm knocking specifically the business model here because the CW has tried this before, the shows didn't rate, and now we're, what we're going to see from the CW come fall is an entire roster of Schitt's Creek wannabes. Can any of these foreign originals break through in a way that rates bigger than the current expensive originals that that are airing on the CW or that aired this past season on the CW? Because... All of them are gone except for All American, which is going to air and which is part of the network's fall schedule and Walker, which is being held for mid-season. And we'll probably just swap right swap spots with All American because I doubt either one of them are going to be for full season orders. So, yeah, there's a lot to distill from all of this, Dan. But, you know, the CW didn't hold an upfront presentation. Instead, they opted for this press conference. Disney was a two hour marathon with like ESPN taking like what felt like the first the first hour of it. I barely have any recollection of Fox because it was just so all over the place. What else? CBS didn't have one. AB, like you said, ABC wasn't even part of Disney's. It's like, you know, again, last year we've said broadcast really did take a backseat. There were no trailers shown last year. This year, you obviously got some of that. Schwartz went through his the fall schedule one by one and showed trailers of shows that have already aired elsewhere that are readily available online and on YouTube. Yeah, it's it's the, the strategies here. There's a lot really that I that I want to talk about, but the most interesting pieces are which networks decided to actually put their head in the sand and ignore the writer's strike 
And which networks decided to not do that? And ABC is really the only one that said, we're going to have a strike-proof fall season. There's nothing that we're going to change here. This is what's coming likely the third week of, of September. CW, you know, most of that stuff is is going to be fine. They've got a lot of unscripted and a lot of foreign. And if All-American can't get, get back before premiere week or if the strike doesn't end before then, they'll have to find a replacement, but that's not a big deal. But uh, there's a lot of hours on CBS's schedule and, uh, and on NBC's schedule that n- will need to be changed should the strike impact the fall season. And all signs point to that actually w- will happen. I think that a lot of people on on Twitter, on the social media, saw the description of of strike proof as being somehow praising as opposed to simply pragmatically acknowledging the business realities of this, which I think is what the phrase really means. It's not like, yay, this is awesome. ABC is going to thrive and it's going to be better for, well, anyone if this is what their schedule is. On the other hand, the difference between the ABC schedule and the CBS or the NBC schedule is it might actually happen. Yeah, and so, that's all I'm inferring by by the term strike proof. Yeah. Like this is a schedule that you will see versus five hours on of, of Dick Wolf shows in the fall that that in no way will, will actually wind up making it unless there's some miracle and the strike ends very soon which they're not even talking yet. Going going back to the once upon a time, upfronts used to be a different thing. It, it used to be something where we would periodically make fun of Fox because Fox would have its, would, would do its upfronts and they would do a fall schedule and they would do a mid-season schedule. And inevitably there would be one or two changes. And that would be something that we would make fun of, that there would be one or two changes each year as opposed to the number of schedules or half schedules or imagined schedules that we got this week where it's just not going to be possible for their plans to go. So they were selling they they're, you know, so some of these networks were basically selling advertisers on an elaborate fantasy that everyone knows won't happen. ABC attempted to sell advertisers on something that is actually possible, whether you look at that schedule of ABCs and think, wow, that's a great reflection of where television is in 2023 or not. Uh, you know, I I personally tend to like shows with scripts, so I can't look at that schedule and be like, yay. But what I can look at that schedule and say is, OK, that's a schedule that at least is possible. <laughs> and, and 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 that's not you know, that's that's not nothing. It's actually a thing. But like the amount of fantasy that had to be sold this week or delusion was very strange, like Fox had two new shows that they announced, neither one of which has a pilot. And so they showed... Yeah, that's Doc and Rescue High Surf. And they showed proof-of-concept clip art reels, basically, for the two shows. So the Doc one was something evocative with a woman in a car accident, but of course we didn't see her face because there's no star of the show. And Yeah, it hasn't been cast yet. It, but they, the same but with Rescue High Surf, yeah. But basically what they sold of it was... This has been a very successful international franchise. So, okay, that's fine. It, I mean, you're not actually selling anything tangible because to me, a show like that is going to hinge completely on who the star of the show is, but whatever. And then the the John Wells Hawaii show was basically, ooh, look, waves. 
<laughs> and that was all it was. And that was what they were trying to sell people in that room on. The, the Fox upfront to me was, was really, it, it was sad because it was a combination of a strange venue. There were like multiple jokes about how the advertisers had to stand down in the floor area and people had to keep apologizing for how uncomfortable people looked. But also they had the talent who was available and the talent who was available, not including actors because they wouldn't cross the picket line. And but they had the, every one of these presentations was picketed by the WGA. And they had ta- and they had the talent standing on a strange bar set that they couldn't actually get up onto conveniently. So you had uh, it, it was just so strange. And and just all of these athletes basically had to become the focus of the the various different um, presentation. So Fox just had an awful lot of, oh, great, it's Michael Strahan again. And then Michael Strahan came back out and he was part of the ABC upfronts. And the ABC upfronts, which again is really Disney because ABC was a non-factor, was one group of athletes talking about sports and just interviewing each other about their sport after another. Because again, you're not going to get talent. There are lots of questions about to me at least, about several of the uh, hosts and things who came out who probably should have known better, but whatever. And then, very strangely, the day after the Disney presentation, a bunch of major sports franchise unions talked about how they stood in solidarity with uh with the WGA and all I could think was, gee, are you going to, are you going to take actual action against the several members of your uh, unions who appeared at an advertising event crossing a picket line for it? Because there were active players in major league baseball, professional football, uh, professional basketball, men's and women who just came out there and crossed a picket line that their respective unions said that they were in solidarity of. So is Donovan Mitchell going to get in trouble because he crossed a picket line, even though the NBA players union said that they were in solidarity? I I don't know. Not a great look and not particularly entertaining either. That's that's kind of the thing. Like, obviously, we understand the, these are very expensive things with lots of moving pieces and the process of canceling them at the last minute is for some of these entities untenable. And so they had to do the best they could, but man, I mean, to me, the bigger, you know, the biggest pivot was NBC, which uh, had to have executives come out instead of their head of ad sales because the head of ad sales got a job as the new CEO of Twitter, literally days before their upfronts, while she was literally in rehearsals for the upfront, she left. So it's kind of kind of incredible what a mess these were this year. So uh, next up, we're going to take a look at well, what we don't know yet. Number three. In breaking with the tradition, a lot of the broadcast networks held off on decisions on several of their bubble shows and pilots. Those decisions are likely coming either before cast options typically expire June 30th or maybe even longer down the line. I don't know. Brad Schwartz was saying CW news could come, quote unquote, soon. But again, to me, part, a big part of this, the missing pieces here is how long the strike goes and how and how that's going to dictate the needs of each of the different broadcast networks. So ABC, for starting there, has comedy home economics, awaiting word on season four, and freshman drama The Rookie Fed, still to be determined. Both are co-productions with outside studios Lionsgate and E1, respectively. On the pilot side, five of ABC's six are still in play. Comedies Keeping It Together, starring Ellie Kemper and Judy Greer. 
Public Defenders with Anthony Anderson and Drama's The Good Lawyer, a spinoff of The Good Doctor starring Felicity Huffman and former Nancy Drew star Kennedy McMahon. The Hurt Unit with Ben McKenzie and Legal Soap Judgment with Sarah Shahi. CBS, as we noted last week, passed on its remaining pilot Jumpstart starring Terry Crews. They are done. The CW, again, has yet to make decisions on three shows, all from Warner Brothers and Greg Berlanti. So they've got All-American Homecoming, Superman and Lois, and Gotham Knights. Sources say Schwartz wants one DC show with rumors swirling that Superman and Lois might move to HBO Max as an original. And if Netflix can pick up Homecoming, which I don't know if that's actually going to happen, but it would make sense on a business level, that would pave the way for Gotham Knights to be the one that returns. And a disclaimer, of course, I'm married to the co-creator of Gotham Knights. Uh, but what we do know is the CW is out of the pilot business. So expect what you've seen from them during the Mark Pedowitz era to not be the, their way of doing things anymore. Over at Fox, they still have decisions to make on Welcome to Flatch, which is a waiting word on a possible third season after season two wrapped in February. And the animated comedy Housebroken, which is owned by Disney and also a waiting word on season three. The network, too, is out of the pilot business, instead focusing on a, the cable and streaming model of script to series. NBC also has a lot left to do. They've got three comedies on the bubble, American Auto, Grand Crew, and Young Rock, as well as four of its pilots. That's all four of its pilots. There's only four pilots at NBC this year, which is just, again, a sign of not spending money where you don't need to, not making and not making pilots that you have no intention of actually picking up. Like, this is more fiscal responsibility than we've seen at the broadcast networks in a very long time. So the four NBC comedies awaiting word is you've got Non-Evil Twin with Amber Ruppin, St. Dennis Medical with Wendy McClendon Covey, and Drama's Murder by the Book starring Retta and Wolf with Zachary Quinto. So the big question, as I said in the top of this segment, is how long the strike will go, how it will impact the fall season, and if it stretches into January, if these shows stand a chance of coming back because as you'll hear coming up in our next segment a lot of these broadcast shows can take up to two or three months to get back into full production and deliver a completed episode so a lot left to be determined here dan so much i mean kind of makes you wonder <laughs> kind of makes you wonder what this week was all about with so many things still in limbo <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Yeah, I mean, again, this isn't about us. It's about advertisers. And these companies no longer prioritize broadcast. As the as you've said, you know, ABC was barely an afterthought in the Disney presentation. But they are these big conglomerates are taking a portfolio approach. It's like, you know, Warner Brothers Discovery, you know, held held an upfront presentation for the first time as a combined company. Obviously, Casey Bloys took the stage. When was Casey Bloys ever at Broadcast Upfront's presentations? He wasn't because it used to be a Turner presentation that always had Conan O'Brien as part of it. And, well, obviously, Conan's not going to cross the picket line, so he wasn't there. There was no talent at that, at that presentation, but it was more about the portfolio approach. And that's what all of these companies are doing, with the exception of... Paramount because they they pulled out and Netflix instead was there with a weird hour long pre recorded panel Q and A I don't know what it was it was just a weird weird Zoom link to watch some pre recorded thing that they refused to send wide to for press to see and it was like 
we've got all these big shows and we've got an ad tier and you like these shows. And a lot of people like these shows because, you know, we tell you how many minutes they watch. And, you know, if you feel like doing algebra, then you can figure out how big these shows are. But we really just, I don't know, they're big, they're popular. So you should spend money with Netflix. And that's what the, what the set, the, the shill was there. So yeah, it's, these are these are do- these are dog and pony shows yep. as a rule, and in this particular year, the the dogs were out on strike, and the ponies decided not to participate out of solidarity, and so that meant that all of the things that you normally get as part of the upfronts week, all of the pomp and circumstance, was completely eliminated. Like at least, I mean, at least whatever it is, Disney had. What, had a troop of samurais come down the aisle and dance on stage as part of the uh, promotion for Shogun. And and that was about as big as it was. But normally, you know, normally the CW has a has a big concert. It's like, ooh, look, it's Jared Leto singing. I mean, um, Stevie Wonder was there at, at exactly. last year. Exactly. Stevie Wonder, there's going to, you know, we're going to get a performance by, by Dolly Parton. No. We got a Jonas Brother, right? Was there a Jonas brother? Not in one. There was of the a Jonas I, brother at one of them. I can't remember. Okay, which, not in one which of the ones. Tells I you everything you need to know about the upfronts presentation. But but like, and then you and then you always, as we've mentioned before, you always get the various different comics from the the different networks eviscerating everything. Whether it's sort of the gold standard, who which is Jimmy Kimmel, but then Can you, you imagine also, what Jimmy Kimmel would have said about the Golden Bachelor. Can we just talk about that for a second? I, Man, that would have been good. I'm sure it would have been funny. I'm sure his take on the entire situation would have been the entire situation. Everything is, is in would have been funny. And instead, there was none of that. You know, he didn't get Seth Meyers. You didn't get all the other people who under normal circumstances would provide, quote unquote, entertainment. And instead, you I, just, although I will say NBC's pre-recorded bit with Ted, the animated Ted, because they're, of course, rebooting that with Seth MacFarlane was pretty biting. OK, that's that's at least something i suppose and obviously that's the kind of thing where they knew in advance that they were going to need to do this and so it was finished long before whatever because you know the various animated shows have also stopped their writers rooms and whatnot out of solidarity so but yeah it just all of the things that normally make upfronts upfronts and presumably make upfronts worthwhile for the advertisers who spend billions at them uh I, I would be I would be curious to hear from some of the ad buyers whether they thought that there was any purpose at all to the past four days. But, you know, but hey, maybe they caught an autographed baseball signed by Derek Jeter after he threw one into the oh crowd. Oh, my God. This, this, happened, at the, the this happened at the end. Fox Fox executives were supposed to give a send off. And instead, Derek Jeter and Alex Rodriguez and might have been Michael. I'm just assuming Michael Strahan was everywhere, started throwing autographed baseballs and footballs into the crowd, which was the first time that the crowd reacted to anything in the entire presentation. But they also started doing it before the Fox executive could do the send off. (laughs) And the Fox executive was like, wait, 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 you were supposed to wait until uh, fine. See you at the drink. See you at the bar. And that was kind of where it ended. And it was actually all things considered the perfect ending to the Fox up front because it was just like, okay, fine. This is just a disaster. (laughs) So yeah, it was, it it was not particularly worthwhile. um, And I, I wonder what the advertisers are going to feel about this um, because yeah. hard, hard to feel yeah. like it had the value that it once might have. Yeah. And we'll see what their, what their reaction is to the various fault lineups. Once we hear more about how the advertising upfront part and the sales went 
So stay tuned to THR.com for that. That'll probably, those stories will probably start trickling in over the summer. So up next. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anytime anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses so join me in the fun sign up now at chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus number four right we return to the strike zone our recently launched segment focused on conversations directly pertaining to the writer's strike Last week, we had 45 minutes with Chris Kaiser, the co-head of the WGA's negotiating committee. This week, we are joined by Ari Goldman, the senior VP content strategy and scheduling at ABC Entertainment. Goldman is not at all involved with the AMPTP, so the following interview focuses on what he is involved with, and that's ABC's fall schedule. For more on Goldman, he's been with the network for a year after spending a decade at NBC Universal, during which he worked in the ratings and research department. The veteran strategy exec also spent time with Fox and started his career on Late Night with Conan O'Brien. Thanks so much for joining us, Ari. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So CBS and NBC unveiled their you know dream scenario fall schedules in which they had their collective heads in the sand regarding the larger impact of the writer's strike. Fox didn't announce its schedule at all for the second year in a row. ABC, meanwhile, from my vantage point at least, took a very realistic approach to what viewers can expect come September. And it's all unscripted fair with repeats of Abbott Elementary. Can you Talk us through the conversations and what those were like internally about setting this schedule that is so completely reliant on unscripted. I, absolutely. I, first, I think we've been preparing for the possibility of a strike for a number of months. I think we started having weekly um, checkpoints around January. Um, so we knew this was a very realistic possibility that come May we'd be in this situation. And I think at ABC, we're really fortunate to have you know Rob Mills and his team and the amazing alternative slate that we have. That puts up ratings, you know, week after week. And I understand, you know, at CBS and NBC and Fox, I, I think they're doing the best they can as well. I think they have their motivations for how they handle the situation. But I don't think any of the other networks had the same bench of alternative shows that we have at ABC. So when I look at the schedule we announced for this fall, we're leading off at 8 p.m. coming out of the affiliate hour with really tr uh, proven track record performers. Um, Dancing with the Stars, obviously, is a huge story coming back to ABC. And I think that's going to be a fantastic lead-in for The Golden Bachelor, which I can't wait to talk about some more with you both. Um, but then really across the week, Celebrity Jeopardy, Judge Steve Harvey, Celebrity Wheel, and then Shark Tank are just really established 8 p.m. performers. And they really uh, fit well with our affiliates, that many of whom have Wheel of Fortune directly leading into primetime. So I think for us, we had a number of conversations. We knew that this would be somewhat um, attention-grabbing that we were doing this. 
Um, but I think we, to your point, really want to treat this um, with credibility and really take a realistic approach because we know that the situation is is very difficult at the moment. Yeah, I think your your overall slate is, I want to say it's 13 unscripted shows and 12 scripted shows, which is a crazy balance. And of course, there's still two more scripted shows on the bubble that haven't been determined and lots of pilots. And we can get to that, that conversation later. But yeah, that seems like a, a very different balance for ABC than what what we've seen for a long time. Sure, and not to mention, you know, potential additional alternative development that's already in our back pocket. So yeah, definitely a robust mix. Um, but by the way, we're really excited when we get to a chance to, to launch our scripted uh, series. I think we have a really great slate um, to talk about there as well. So I wanna, you know, talk about the fall schedule specifically. Is the plan still to launch in the third week of September, which is historically dubbed Premier Week? Right. And I think the official Nielsen start this year is 925. So that's when we would be targeting, you know, ideally most of our shows somewhere in that, you know, vicinity. I wouldn't say that's an official start date for, for all of our shows, but I think we're looking at roughly that time period for us, um, give or take a week or two. Um, we do have on ABC the, the good fortune of having a number of NFL games to start the season in concert with ESPN and toward the end of the fall as well on Monday night. So we have certain constraints to work within, but um, I'd say, yeah, we're certainly looking at that time of year. You know, so as as we're doing this interview, it's Wednesday afternoon and you've been in New York all week for Upfronts. What kind of feedback have you heard from advertisers and even affiliates about the, the fall schedule that you guys put out, even though it wasn't even part of Disney's Upfront presentation? Yeah, I mean, we just had our affiliate meeting this morning. I think they really appreciated the honesty that we put forth with the schedule. And again, I stand behind everything I'm saying with the schedule. I spent my whole career in research over at uh, NBC, and I think the core tenets of scheduling are really upheld here with the schedule. We have, again, the broad base appealing shows at 8 p.m. We're really giving the affiliates what they need at 10 o'clock, which I think are, A, we have a lot of noise um, with Golden Bachelor, and I think that's going to be a really great fit, again, with that Dancing with the Stars profile and really, I think, addressing one of the kind of challenges that the Bachelor universe provides, which is it's a great demographic performer for us. It's huge across platforms, but it is unique on the schedule. It's not a show that necessarily lends itself as a lead in to launching scripted series or to even necessarily launching alternative series. And so I think from my perspective, it's a stronger approach for us to shift that, you know, Bachelor in Paradise 9 to 11, for instance. Um, bridging that 10 o'clock hour and giving the affiliates the strength of that bachelor lead-in. Um, and then again, on, on Monday night's Golden Bachelor at 10 o'clock as the lead-in there. But really across the week, 8 o'clock, 10 o'clock, I feel really confident about. Um, the affiliates have, have been really positive. And I think sales is really appreciative that they're not going to have to go and sell a schedule that won't deliver. You know, they're realistic. They're going into the market with a schedule that will be seen by the millions that watch ABC this fall. So it's been positive. I understand... You know, we obviously would love to have um, a content mix that represents the the full depth of our portfolio. But, you know, we'll get there. I mean, I, I, I am hopeful that we'll get there sooner than later, but we'll get there. Well, I want to ask about the, the sooner than later part of it. How quickly are you guys prepared to pivot if the strike ends? Are, you know, if the strike ends on July 1st somehow, is there a chance there could be original scripted programming on ABC in the fall, for example? Yeah, I, I wouldn't rule that out necessarily. I do think, though, from a new series perspective, we'll start there. I think for a new show to get up and running and really turn around with the, the care and attention we want to put into those shows and really nurturing the development, 
I don't think we would be in the position to want to rush a new series to air on the scripted side. And I think that's, you think about the media budgets involved and really launching these shows the way we want to, the number of weeks that we have to play with in the fall, you know, I mentioned on Monday nights with football, we're kind of surrounded by, by games on that night. Um, we have Thanksgiving breaks, we have Christmas weeks, you know, it starts to get a bit choppy in the fall to think about launching a show and then coming off a few weeks, coming back on. So that was already, frankly, something that we were putting off the table months ago in terms of launching a new scripted under these circumstances. I wouldn't rule out, frankly, returning series in some capacity if we were fortunate enough to resolve as soon as you described. But even then, I think everything I just said holds true. I think we still look at our schedule that we announced as one that does a great job putting up strong linear ratings throughout the entire fall and really allows us to focus on things like New Year's Rock and Eve and the football and NBA games we have on Christmas to get the schedule back up in a stronger fashion in January. So that'll be something, look, we're, we are in constant, robust discussion about these things. So I don't want to rule anything out at this point. And and how about on the other side of the equation? What is kind of the drop dead point from your perspective at which point <laughs> mid-season ceases to be a home for scripted programming if things go on longer? Well, define mid-season. I mean, I, I think uh, in, in terms of a January, I think in terms of a drop dead, look, it's going to be show by show. You know, we are getting differing production calendars. We've been kind of looking at the reality of that for, for each of our series. Some might get up and running faster, and I think we'll we'll lean in where appropriate. Um, but I don't know. Look, toward the end of the summer, I think we'll have a really strong sense of the reality of midseason. And the good news is we have not, even with this fall schedule, depleted our arsenal. We've yet to, you know, I, I've seen certainly a, a lot of the commentary online about, about the schedule we have not tapped into the full depth and breadth of the Disney portfolio, for instance. We certainly have a, a, an amazing news team at ABC that has a lot of you know high-performing content. So we, we're, we're ready. But, but obviously, we would love to be able to come back at a time of year that is, is really robust for broadcast and, and high usage and you know, surrounded by great tent poles that we have to market within. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting that you mentioned ABC News and a lot of actually a lot of the things that you were discussing, it kind of reminded me of the way that broadcast networks, including ABC, came out of quarantine in terms of the schedule and how they slowly, you know, push these shows back onto the air with originals based on their own production timelines, which I'm guessing you have experience in during in your career as well. So it seems like this is has elements of, of what we just went through a few just a few years ago. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, we talked about it a lot. I was not in scheduling yet at that time, but I was certainly estimating different scenarios for the scheduling team at NBC. And, you know, the, at NBC, we were, you know, looking at acquired series from international and really kind of stretching what we could. I think at ABC, we've talked so much, you know, we part of our strike contingencies here were looking at our summer schedule and do we do we shift certain things into the fall? Do we hold, you know, a number of series I'm actually really happy to say we have largely left our summer intact. You know, we're looking at not really um, dismantling what I think is a winning schedule this summer, which is already, you know, so much more original hours than our competitors in that space. We made one kind of surgical change pushing presser luck into the fall. Uh, but otherwise, we're, we're status quo versus what we announced a few months ago. But definitely parallels to, to the COVID situation and a lot of uncertainty as to when things would uh, return to a sense of normalcy. But, you know... Hope, again, hoping it's uh, sooner than later there. Yeah. And, you know, and piggybacking off of your ABC News content, I want to talk about the rest of the Disney portfolio, because obviously it's pretty vast as your upfront showcase this week. But 
Has there been any conversations about repurposing some of the more popular shows on Disney Plus, for example, like anything Star Wars? If, you know, I think The Mandalorian aired what the pilot or a recent episode on ABC, yes, yep. um, or even some of the Marvel shows. I mean, those even repeats, even though these shows have already aired on Disney Plus, I would imagine th those would probably rate a lot higher than say a, a new episode of Celebrity Jeopardy. Oh, I, I disagree with that last part very strong. Uh, truly, I do, but. I, I hear the larger point, right? I mean, yeah. I think plus it's like a, a big great... commercial for Disney Plus, right? Oh, hundred percent. I mean, and look, we we are you know firmly committed to supporting Disney Plus. I think, yeah, we we tried Mandalorian early this year, and I think it worked out really nicely for us on Friday night. Celebrity Jeopardy is a force. Let's not let's not diminish the the number one live performer on our schedule last season when we moved it to Thursday nights. It is really quite formidable. But but yeah, certainly we've had conversations and we will continue to have conversations about the Disney portfolio. And I'd say one just from a scheduling standpoint, there are you know things we have to work through. You know the formats of these shows that are not designed for broadcast. You know we have a certain duration that we have to fit to and try to accommodate our ad load. And there are standards and practices concerns that we have to you know address. But I'd say anything and everything is is frankly on the table, and you know we have folks who will help make things happen here. Um, but I don't think we're there yet. I think from a rating standpoint, to the part to the point that I uh, took issue with on Celebrity Jeopardy, I really believe, and I, I I would say this with with full you know candor and credibility on at, at, on the line here, the alternative shows that we're airing this fall are linear performers. You know, and my job, you know, I come from, again, at NBC, I was the multi-platform uh, research guru over there. I am now in in a role that I think is really dedicated to supporting the linear business, uh, along with, you know, launching shows across platforms. I am a ratings junkie, and I believe that we should be making our audience as satisfied as possible. The ABC audience, the folks who are watching, you know, KABC, WABC, etc., they love these game shows. They watch Wheel and Jeopardy every night. They've been watching for as long as I've been alive on their ABC stations. And so I, I think we, we should acknowledge that there is a, a wide swath of sort of older skewing viewers who do love um, exactly the product that we're putting forth. That said, we'll see what happens. But when you put it that way, and you've mentioned that a couple times, you've talked about sort of the different demos. Is it your expectation that at least in terms of linear ratings, this is going to be an older skewing lineup for you guys and how much so? Well, I would say just on a nominal basis, I think the 18 to 49 ratings will be strong, will be robust. I am all for bringing in 50 plus as well. So I don't, I don't view it as a, a negative to skew older necessarily. Again, when when the median age of our affiliate lead-in is close to 67, right? Half of our audience is over 67. I don't think it's bad to acknowledge that reality. That said, I think we have shows that are going to do 18 to 49 rating. You know, Golden Bachelor, I've talked a lot about the last couple of days. I know there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of conversation and cynicism maybe about us going to that space. We are so excited because not only do we have a show, a, a franchise that's so robust like The Bachelor, but we have an ability now to tap into the lapsed fan base. We have an ability to tap into really the core of who's watching affiliate television, who's watching, you know, network TV. And I think we're going to actually address some of what younger viewers are looking for in this type of show. We're going to go after the authenticity of a real search for love with people who've lived their lives and are really in it for the right reasons. Um, and so, look, I, I view it as as a positive that we're you know going to be able to bring in an older demo. And by the way, I feel that way with our scripted shows as well. You know, I celebrate Will Trent, for instance, which has been a strong demo performer, strong on Hulu. 
but is one of our top shows. It's definitely a top five ABC show in total viewers on an L7 basis, over 6 million viewers. That's not a bad thing. That is actually a really great strategy. And I think I'll give credit to CBS, I think, for really acknowledging that for years and, and really owning that space. I, I think we should be you know much more competitive in that space. And I look at what we have coming down the pike. Well, Trent, the rookie, um, 911, 911, which is one of the top dramas um, overall audience, the number one drama in 18 to 4 on our broadcast, and now coming to a network with the circulation to support that profile. I think we have a lot of upside with that schedule when we get there. Um, by the way, I was not just saying where 911 was scheduled, to be clear. I was not um, announcing anything about an adjacency to the rookie, to be very clear. But uh, but that's the thing. I think it's not, I, I just want to dispel some of the myths and the concern about the 50 plus, the sort of older skew. If we can deliver an 18 to 49 C3 rating and bring in older viewers, why not? Yeah. One is, you know, kind of piggybacking off of, the, you know, your comments about scripted two with 911 and bringing in some you know more originals. You know, we had Susan Rovner from NBC Universal yeah. on our 200th episode not too long ago, and she explained why the writers' rooms um, at the time were staying open after they wrapped this, their current season to get ahead on scripts for basically as a strike contingency here. And you know, yet they have shows like Quantum Leap and and Night Court, you know, with, that have scripts in the can here. Did ABC do that, and what? And was there any talk about doing that? Was it our talk about the older demo that that brought up Night Court and Quantum Leap to mind? I think. Uh, well, um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'd put myself in that because I'm on. I'm now teetering on the edge of that demo right now. But I also grew up watching both shows, both original yeah. shows. So, by the way, I think they were even scheduled on the same night for about half a season back in like '91 or something. I think when I was looking up you know, the research at the time at NBC. But I digress. Um, no, uh, we did, we talked quite a bit about what we could get ahead of at ABC, and I think our determination was it, it just didn't make as much sense for us. I think we had a sense that, and again, this is not precisely my area of expertise, so I'll, I'll caution that, but I think there was a sense that the writers being involved throughout production was of value to these shows. Um, and again, I'm not saying that as as a something to dismiss the approach that NBC or CBS may have taken on some of theirs, but we, it was definitely on the table, and I think we we felt that we could we would rather weather this when the when the time comes and really have the writer the writers really in the process in a more organic fashion. Yeah, I mean that certainly would help to get shows back on the air sooner, having those scripts already right. in the can. But but again, it, going yeah. back to the strength of our alternative, I mean that's I, I I mean it. I mean we I'm excited when I see things like Jeopardy Masters doing point sixes, point sevens, and live plus same day, which are bigger than probably, you know, any show on any of our competitors in the last several months, right? And we're doing this night after night with that type of programming. So I, I think we should embrace that. Yeah, I mean, realistically speaking, once the strike is over, when whenever that may be, how fast could originals like Grey's or Abbott be back on the air? I mean, obviously yeah. every show is is unique and comedies and dramas are a little bit, you know, on different playing fields here. But is there just kind of a general time frame that you can give us and, and our listeners here to really explain the challenges of going from zero to 60? Yeah, again, not 100% my area of expertise, but I will say, you know, I would expect it's at least a, a two to three month process going from zero to 60, Right. So I guess that's not really going zero to sixty. That's going zero to whatever speed that is. Um, but yeah, it would take it would take some time. And I think some shows are going to be faster to spin back up than others. I think certainly my expectation would be the multicams. You know, the Connors, for instance, would be one that could get back up and running with a bit more um, speed than than some of the scripted series like Grays and Station. 
I mean, I think with that in mind, you know, if the strike were to resolve in a timely enough fashion for us to get back this fall, I would be kind of eyeing, you know, the Wednesday comedies as a, as a pretty organic choice to return. Um, and I think those would be the, at the, the sort of tip of the spear, the leading edge of, of coming back to the schedule. But every show will be different. Every network is going to have a different set of circumstances to work with. So what was the strategy around making Abbott the only scripted show in repeats in the fall? What were the conversations about yeah. what this kind of outlier platform for the show would actually do both for Abbott and for ABC in that slot? Yeah, I mean, this is something I feel pretty passionately about as a scheduler and a researcher that ABC has built such a behavior of viewing. And it's very, it's hard to establish new behaviors, I think, with linear viewing in this day and age. You know, people are obviously watching the way they want to. Um, that said, there is still, I think, a, a remaining behavior on Wednesday night for ABC's comedies. I think that it sort of explains kind of the ratings floor that you see on some nights of television where reflexively, you know, we could air repeats of the Connors at eight and still churn out, you know, 0.35 demo rating, which on other networks and even on other nights for us may be, you know, pretty stellar, right? So I think keeping that presence of comedy that's been built for, you know, over a decade on ABC was really important to me. And of course, I mean, Abbott Elementary is a defining show in this landscape. And I don't think there's a more critically acclaimed series in all of television, inclusive of streaming, right? So I think having that on the air as a, as a representation of our brand in a time period that has a behavior reunited with the lead in that it had in season one and in, in the surroundings of another hopefully fruitful Emmy season, I think was kind of a no brainer for us. I like the idea, though, of it being a representational decision that it's there to that it's there to stand in for the concept <laughs> of comedy on ABC. <laughs> Well, it's also funny if you watch it again. There's that too. It's just a good show. So I think, you know, I, 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 I'm happy that we have this, you know, little scripted oasis. And of any show that we could do that with, I think comedies into comedies are a great scheduling strategy. So we have an hour back to back of that and in a compatible place and with a behavior behind it. Yeah. You know, you, you know, speaking of comedy is one of the two bubble shows that you guys have yet to make it that ABC has yet to make a decision on is home economics, as well as the drama, the rookie spinoff rookie feds. Um, plus, you still got five of your six pilots, including a couple of comedies still in contention. Can you talk a little bit about how much of the delayed decisions on these can be attributed or attributed to the strike? Yeah, again, as much as we've, we're really proud to have gotten ahead of um, the reality of the situation with the fall, I think we do want to keep some flexibility and keep our options open as much as we can for the remainder of the season. Um, and so, yeah, the strike has definitely had an impact on just the speed at which we're going to be making some of these choices. Um, but I really strongly feel it's, it's not an indictment on either of these shows, and it's not necessarily a blanket um, statement that we're going to hold off on both of them for the same duration of time or rush to judgment on either of them. Um, I think it comes down to the individual needs of the schedule. And I'll tell you, look, I, I was so thrilled. Um, the move we made with the rookies this past season on Tuesday was one of, I'd say, the, the biggest success stories of the season on broadcast television. The rookie has such momentum and had so much momentum on Sunday and really flourished on Tuesday. And feds paired really nicely. If you look at you know, I'm going to talk about some nerdy things here. I mean, I guess I already have. I'm. I'm a I mean, you're, look at the podcast you're on. You're, this is a very nerdy <laughs> podcast. Let's be honest. Yeah, look, it, the data that that I look at for this. I mean, if you look at true live viewing, which is not the live same day viewing that is, you know, commonly bandied about and probably um, in some camps disregarded prematurely and in some camps overstated. 
I'm not even talking about live same day, the live only, the people who are actually there day, date, and time. There was a great story of compatibility between rookie and rookie feds that we had a strong sense would be the case, and it, it panned out very close to expectation. So this is this is not, you know, again, something that we take lightly with rookie feds. Um, and, and again, home economics, I think on a compatibility basis, the Abbott and home ec pairing was I think either our most compatible pairing of last season, if not, you know, maybe second highest in terms of the shared audience on a live basis. So we'll see what happens just in terms of what our precise needs are. You know, these schedules cost money. Uh, we have a certain limited runway of weeks, depending on when the strike resolves. Um, we have a lot of sports um, on our schedule as well going into next summer. So Everything is TBD, um, but we are, you know, we're really fans of both of these shows. And so I wouldn't read too much into necessarily the the precise uh, lack of decision making at this point. Yeah, I mean, cast options on most broadcast shows and pilots typically expire June 30th. That's the same date that the contracts for SAG-AFTRA and the Directors Guild have with the studios and their current contracts expire. My question here is, is the logic that the longer the strike goes on, the less of a need ABC will have for either home economics, the rookie feds, or even some of the pilots. Yeah, again, I think this is an area that is is a bit outside my wheelhouse per se, but I think it, it's a complicated and sort of nuanced situation for all of our shows. And so in some cases, I do think the duration could benefit some and, and hurt others. It really comes down to our precise needs on the schedule per night. And so it's just it's a bit premature for me to even kind of speculate on what that exactly would be. One of the things ABC and other networks have been doing is shifting to year round development. That's obviously helped NBC out, even though half of its schedule is completely unrealistic with all of the Dick Wolf shows that are there's no way that those are going to be ready for fall if the strike continues through the summer, as is currently expected. But they do have three brand new shows that they produced already that are already in the can three scripted shows two dramas and a comedy um is the thought that some of these pilots could be possibly rolled over and in development for next year for next season i mean that's honestly what wound up happening with most of the pilots from 2020 yeah i think i think that's certainly on the table and so you know year-round development has been a really core part of the strategy you know of my colleagues here you know simran and craig have been really championing that approach um so i, I certainly think that is a, a potential outcome here um and that's why again if you think back to you know we have a number of pilots that are in contention we have not rendered a verdict on most of them you know we made one pickup this week that we're really excited about but I think otherwise, yeah, we're seeing what makes the most sense for each fiscal year. And we want to make sure that these shows get the proper attention to to be as, as strong as they can be. So again, we're not looking to rush into anything. And I think as for as for NBC strategy, you know, holding back certain content, I think that's what made sense for them. Um, there were certainly, you know, some shows that we talked about, you know, do we do we shift this? Do we kind of move things around? And I think we're playing the hand that, that we have. And um, I think that makes most sense from a, from a rating standpoint and a financial standpoint for us. Uh, I want to wrap with kind of a, a big picture question that ties into a lot of the things that you've been discussing. If you if you talk about TV schedules these days with people, um, particularly young people, very online people, you hear a lot of do time slots even matter anymore in 2023? Does any of this even matter anymore the way people watch TV right now? And we've had longtime NBC and Fox scheduler uh, Preston Beckman on the podcast a couple times, and he is always happy to to talk about how really and truly time slots and lead-ins still matter, still have value. 
from your perspective, how much value do those things have in 2023? And is there a particular audience or demo to whom they have more value in your perspective? Yeah, I think they absolutely matter. Um, I think they're often misunderstood. I think the value is misunderstood, especially if only assessed at that kind of live same day um, level. I think back to, I mean, there are examples of, of shows that, you know, from the past that I'm like, you know, those were canceled way too soon, right? Rob on CBS, Rob exclamation point. I'm like, you know, you look back at the numbers that was doing on a live, you know, there was no one DVRing that show, but it was holding nearly all of that Big Bang audience. I look back at some of those shows that kind of got away. Um, I'd say on the ABC schedule, if you look at some of the successes we've had leaning into the live flow that we that we're able to manufacture, I think, yeah, for Will Trent, it really helped to launch out of a, a rookie rookie feds crossover and hold on to 80 percent of that audience live. I think it absolutely helped. You know, when we had Vanna White spin the wheel last week in primetime at 9 p.m., we had our most watched Wednesday night outside of uh, the award shows in about three years. And I think that's, again, dovetailing with the great influx of audience from Jeopardy! Masters. And we launched a game show docu-series. We have a lot of game shows, and we we're proud of them, if, you, if you've gotten that memo on this, this call. The game show show at 10 o'clock did you know, our best numbers in that time slot and overall audience in about a year and a half. So the scheduling absolutely matters. Uh, if you're looking at you know, the retention of a show based on the overnights that get somehow mysteriously leaked to the press, even though Nielsen is very you know, expressly prohibiting that communication, um, that's, I think, a misleading representation of, of lead-in performance. But I, I wholeheartedly would agree with Preston, who was you know, my first boss over at Fox many, many years ago. Um, he is dead right about this. And I think the streamers see the value in adjacencies and, and times of year and days of the week just as well as, as the linear networks do. Congratulations on being the first person to mention upside down exclamation point, Rob exclamation point on this podcast <laughs> in our 215 episodes. So I'm happy to do it. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking us through all of this week's busy ABC news. All right, we appreciate it. Thanks so much. A reminder, my DMs on Twitter are open if you have thoughts that would be good for Strike Zone or you would like to join us on the podcast. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Among this week's new launches, you've got IFC's Sisters, Apple's High Desert, Freebie, Freebies, Primo, Showtime's Ghosts of Beirut, and Acorn TV's Happy Valley, plus the To All the Boys I've Loved Before offshoot XO Kitty on Netflix. Dan, what you got? Lots and lots of stuff. And probably a little something for everybody. Well, kind of, maybe. I mean, not if you not if you're a big fan of, I don't know, superhero shows, but from what I understand, superhero shows are in the past. So no more superhero shows, kids. We're done with them. Um Anyway, so yes, uh, IFC's Sisters already uh, premiered at the beginning of the week, and it got very little uh, coverage or, or commentary. I reviewed it in large part because it is co-created by Sarah Goldberg from uh, Barry. She created it with her longtime friend and acting school uh, compatriot, I believe, uh, Susan Stanley. And it's... It's a fairly conventional fish-out-of-water story on IFC here um, about a young Canadian woman whose mother dies and in her will or whatever, she leaves her some additional information about the father who the young woman never knew existed, uh, who apparently is Irish. And so she heads across the pond and quickly meets her 
long lost and never known half sister, as well as other various wacky Irish people. And they travel across the country trying to find the father with wild hijinks ensuing. The actual functional plot of the show is both very, very conventional and I would say prone heavily to everybody's wacky on both sides stereotyping. So heaven knows this is a depiction of Ireland that tends heavily towards uh, everybody drinking at bars where there's inevitably a once style guitar player and crooner and whatnot. And, you know, they go on the road and naturally they find themselves at a boozy Irish funeral, which features Fiona Love Flanagan for no real reason, but not to say there's anything wrong with that because Fiona Love Flanagan is always awesome. Um, and so it, it kind of leans into cliches. It also goes the other way as well. Uh, there's, there's a lot of, joking about how the main character is Canadian, so she's constantly apologizing and saying that she's sorry for things, and that's that's kind of amusing, and stuff of that note. I, I don't think it's a I don't think it's a great piece of writing, but I think sometimes it has some interesting uh perspective on on sisterhood and on family trauma and, and things of that note. I think I think there's there's some of that in there. There's a lot of potential to the writing. And it makes sense given that both Stanley and Goldberg are are first time show creators and in the British style, they wrote all six episodes. Uh, but what it's worth watching for really and truly is mostly uh, Goldberg and Stanley. And I, I think they are both really, really good. They're sometimes funny. And it's just such a good showcase mostly for Goldberg and Stanley. And they're both very, very good. I, I've thought that Sarah Goldberg was one of the real highlights on Barry throughout its entire run. And I remain vaguely mystified by the fact that she only has one Emmy nomination for the show. I am perfectly happy to see anything that reminds people that Sarah Goldberg is extremely talented, extremely versatile. She's very good at doing light comedy. And then she's excellent at doing light comedy that also infuses really kind of tortured emotional stuff at, at its core. And that's been a thing that she's done excellently on Barry over the years and that she's been doing excellently this season. I thought that in the, uh, I guess it would probably be two weeks ago, she had a an especially good Barry episode this past week. Also good. But yeah, I think I think that's the reason to watch it. Also, it's only six episodes. Uh, the, the Irish settings are fun and nice. There are a couple good uh, surprise cameos, some surprising, some not. Uh, I mentioned Fiona LaFlanagan, who for some people, it's always exciting to see Fiona LaFlanagan pop up in places. And then in the last couple episodes, the actor who plays the long-lost father is a, a bit of a surprise, though IFC has put out press stills with him, so whatever. I'm not going to spoil it here. Anyway, that's uh, <laughs> that's Sisters on IFC. Um, continuing along, uh, Freebies Primo. Leslie? Freebie. Thank you. Uh, it premieres on on Friday, and it's actually it's a it's another story about about siblinghood more than it is anything else. Uh, if Sisters was a show about um, about sororal feelings, this is a show about fraternal feelings. Uh, it is based on to some degree on the life and upbringing of the series's creator uh, Shea Serrano, who people will know most likely for his. Uh, his writing on sports and pop culture. He's written for The Ringer for a long time and other various places. He's one of those people who folks will know from Twitter and whatnot. 
It is uh, co-executive produced by former TV's top five guest, Mike Schur, who people, of course, know as being Mike Schur. And the premise is basically it's the coming-of-age story of a 16-year-old uh, high school junior uh, named Rafa who lives with his single mom, played by Christina Vidal, and they spend much of their lives surrounded by uh, Christina Vidal's character's five brothers, or the main character's five uncles, who are always there to ask advice. And they have very different perspectives on life, and they're just sort of wacky and funny in five very different ways. And uh, I kind of appreciated in the early going, having the fact that the brothers are all, they all have completely autonomous facial hair styles. So there's one who's clean shaven. There's one who has a goatee. There's one who has a funny mustache, etc., etc. So that that's very helpful because otherwise you might struggle to keep up with them. But at a certain point, probably by episode two or three, I had all of the four brothers straight set aside i knew i knew who they all were i knew their voices and that's actually to me a, a pretty solid achievement for a show like this it, it really does make its main characters all of them very very distinctive gives them voices gives them personalities and they're much more the show than the main character who this is fine but he's sort of just coming of age 101 it's you know he's he's nerdy he's in love with the girl down the street he isn't sure what his future holds that kind of thing nothing nothing revolutionary in that character but a lot of the performances by the actors who play the uncles are are really, really charming. I think I liked uh, Jonathan Medina most. He plays the oldest of the uncles who has a wife and kids and his own business. And he has a, a very uh, rigorous approach to what Rafa's future should be. I, I think that Jonathan Medina is extremely funny here and, uh, and really liked his performance. I also liked... Uh, uh, Johnny Ray Diaz, who plays Raleigh, who's sort of the the somewhat dim bulb of the siblings, but he, of course, has much more street smarts and sensibilities than his lack of intelligence would suggest. I thought he was extremely funny. Really, I, I liked all of the all of the uncles. The vibe that the show has, I would compare it. You know, I think I think probably because it is the story of a of a, a Latinx family. I think probably that the tendency is going to be to compare it to things like On My Block or uh, One Day at a Time, and and you can do that. And there's absolutely a definite cultural specificity to the show that I. What think about is, this fool? How close? Oh, how I, similar is it to this fool? It's, I would. It, that's another one that it absolutely can be can, can be compared to. I don't think it's it's identical, but I think that there are definitely similarities. But the show, honestly, that I found myself thinking of most frequently was the uh, quickly canceled, uh, but largely loved by by some people, Fox comedy enlisted uh, from Kevin Beagle and uh, loved friend, it and friend of the Hands podcast on heads. and friend of the podcast Mike Royce. Um, and like, I think, I think that to me is a much better sense of what this show is. And, you know, I think enlisted it, using that as a point of comparison, will let lots of people know it's the kind of show they want to watch. I think it's a show that's really good at depicting how siblings interact and how families operate and the way that families are driven by love, but also constant bickering by the way that they have a, a family history of, of pranks and shared jokes and shared traumas and 
they like to fight, but at the end, they'll always come back home and and have the emotional responses and have the emotional connection. I think it does that extremely well. I, I don't think I laughed a lot at the show, but I, I really found it extremely likable. I've watched all eight episodes and really, really enjoyed it. So uh, there's that. Ghost of Beirut, which premieres on Sunday on uh, on Showtime, is... It's from some of the creators of uh, of Fauda, and so you know there's sort of that sense of of intelligence style thriller, and it's the story of the manhunt to find the Hezbollah co-founder who was responsible for the Beirut embassy bombings and a bunch of other horrible tragedies and uh and so kind of it's luring people in with a couple vaguely recognizable guest stars not vaguely entirely recognizable but who aren't really the reasons to watch it so you know Dermot Mulroney and and Garrett Dillahunt are absolutely the people who who you will find most familiar in this show and I always like Garrett Dillahunt and I often like Dermot Mulroney and and that's fine I think the actual stars of the show uh, uh, Dina Shahabi, who people will know from Jack Ryan, the first season and other things. She plays a, a CIA operative who's been on the hunt for this character, uh, you know, sort of called the ghost and other various things. The show is a, is four episodes and it, it actually, what it has the most similarities to, and there's a lot of logic to this is the, the two-part Manhunt anthology series. The first part was Ted Kaczynski. The second part, of course, uh, which I think was on Discovery. And then it moved over to Spectrum for the second part, which was um, which was about, why am I? Oh, the, uh, the Atlanta Olympic bomber. That was uh, Richard Jewell. And then the subsequent Manhunt after that. Um, but it, Greg Barker, who was one of the directors on Manhunt directed all four episodes here. He co-wrote it. And it's a lot about kind of the difficult process and the bureaucratic wrangling of an extensive multi-year Manhunt. And it's it's interesting. It's not gripping in the way that I would say the first season of Manhunt generally was. The second season was a little more hit and miss. Uh, it has the added wrinkle of documentary style interviews with various Mossad and CIA veterans and with different journalists who kind of add a little bit of real world grounding to the dramatization in between. It's not great, but it's it's interesting. And I think that if you like the sort of international thriller that is its backdrop, I think you can find value to that. So that's Showtime's Ghosts of Beirut. Continuing along, because there's a lot of damn TV, uh, there is... Uh, High Desert, which is on Apple TV Plus, and it stars stars Patricia Arquette as a woman who was married to a a drug dealer played by Matt Dillon, who's a special guest star here, and whose life kind of went to seed after he was arrested and uh, put in jail. She's had financial difficulties. She's an addict herself. And she decides to change her life uh, by becoming a private investigator working with uh, a down-on-his-luck PI played by uh, Brad Garrett. And I think the premise of that, if I give you the premise, is is fairly likable. Uh, this This is a tough show because it is a show that is trying to do a lot of things 
tonally that I don't know necessarily that it is able to really do. It's kind of, it's, it's a very messy show. It's not in any way a conventionally funny show, though it has funny moments. I think it is interesting to watch because of how Patricia Arquette pours herself into characters like this and how television has been giving her lots of interesting characters like this to play in recent years. And she does it extremely well, but the show isn't really sure how much it wants to embrace the things that are funny about it. And it just kind of becomes sour in tone throughout. And the actual mystery that she spends most of the season trying to follow it involves uh, an overacting, uh, or rather a guru, uh, played by an overacting Rupert friend, who is is not really all that interesting to spend time with. And then it, it goes off in interesting directions sometimes, like there's stuff about art forgery that's amusing. But I, I found myself liking it, unfortunately, less and less and less as I went along. I watched six of the eight episodes... Last night, doing last little bits of podcast prep, I was like, okay, do I want to watch the last two episodes? And instead, I watched all four episodes of FX's Secrets of Hillsong, uh, a documentary series about the Hillsong church slash cult uh, instead, because I just had no interest in watching any more of High Deserts. And I, and I, and this is not one where I, I think I'm likely to finish it, unfortunately. I, like, to me, what High Desert feels like is a not wholly perfectly executed version of a certain type of British show that is about this kind of messy characters. Uh, you know, Rain Dogs is a good version of a of a somewhat comparable show. But if you had told me that High Desert was based on a 10-year-old British format that had starred Brenda Blethyn, it wouldn't surprise me at all. I just wouldn't necessarily have known why anyone needed to do it. So... Uh, as incidentally for Secrets of Hillsong, it's not bad. It's, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things that will absolutely, it, it's basically yet another cult documentary is what it is. It's just the fact that the cult here is evangelical Christianity is something else. But the documentary really does actually, especially in its last two episodes, it, it goes to some extremes to make sure that viewers understand that it's not a condemnation of Christianity. It's not even a condemnation of, of Pentecostalism or, or evangelical Christianity. It's a condemnation of these sort of mega churches where they become basically corporatized to the point at which there's no reasonable oversight and in lieu of oversight, very, very bad things happen. And it starts off, I didn't think the first couple episodes were really all that interesting. And I and I honestly had a hard time feeling pity for the people who were sort of some of the people being victimized here. Let's let's be honest, there were there were cases of sexual assault uh, that very clearly it is easy to feel sympathy for. But in some cases, a lot of the bad stuff just involves like workers who were being exploited by the Hillsong church as volunteers. And to, to me, this whole thing appears to have been such a scam and such an obvious scam that, yeah, I, it's, it's hard to sympathize with that. Obviously when the crimes get worse and there were much, much worse crimes going back decades in Australia, um, very easy to empathize there. And that's when it becomes kind of hard to watch in the God, this is horrible. I can't believe all of this happened kind of way. 
So, yeah, found that found it interesting. And then last but not least, honestly, the best thing that's coming up is the third season of Happy Valley, which has already premiered in the UK. Uh, it is coming to Acorn. People probably watched the first two seasons. Well, people probably didn't watch the first two seasons because whatever, you know. <laughs> it's a British crime drama. Probably some people watched it. Other people didn't. But it's uh, premiering the third season is on Acorn. And just this is this is a series that I can't recognize recommend highly enough it, the performance by sarah lancashire as the the main character who is a um a small town british police sergeant uh whose family was torn apart by just horrible violence perpetrated by a sociopath played wonderfully by james norton uh it's it's just a really really good really taut police drama sarah lancashire is fantastic just just an, a remarkable performance. One of honestly the best television performances ever. It is. It is a. It is a top twenty-five television performance, possibly all time. James Norton also quite excellent. Just utterly terrifying and chilling. The third season is very good. It has some flaws for me, and I think, as as I said in my review, which should be up on on Friday on THR. The James Norton character, Tommy Lee Royce, is both the second best thing about the show, but also the biggest problem of the show. Because it's one of those examples where you have a character who, if you start off, you can just accept, okay, they're a bad guy, fine, let's get them in jail, move on. But if you keep bring them, bring them back as the centerpieces to each season, it becomes a borderline supernatural thing. They, they become much closer to Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees than they become to actual humans, no matter how well played the roles are. And to me, somewhat the decision to bring Tommy Lee Roy, Tommy Lee Royce back over and over again, while I understand completely, he is the motivating factor for this entire family and this entire character. But in order to do it, you have to make him so bad that it's hard to feel that the character is human anymore. And so much about the show is about the very, very human pain that this family has been going through because of this character. But still, it is a three season show. And I thought this was a very satisfying end to its three seasons. And really, that is the that is the best of the shows this week. Uh, going back through, of course, I thought that Sisters was worth watching for Sarah Goldberg. That's on IFC, and the first episode has already premiered. High Desert, it's a difficult tonal thing. It's on Apple TV+. Plus. I fully respect a lot of the performances, particularly Patricia Arquette in the lead role. Um, maybe you will respond to its tone more than I did. I think it's also very likely that you will be turned off by it, tuned, turned off by its tone and that you'll stop watching it much faster than I did, which, you know, I gave it six episodes. I feel like that was sufficient. Uh, maybe you'll give it two or maybe you'll be out after 15 minutes. Uh, Primo on Freebie really liked, Freebie. really liked it, liked the performances, not an uproarious comedy. It's not one where you're going to laugh throughout every episode, but you will laugh. And I think you'll feel the family warmth of it a lot. Ghost of Beirut, solid, but probably unremarkable, uh, political thriller, historical thriller on Showtime and, uh, the secrets of Hillsong. It, it ultimately becomes something I think substantive by the end. I, I had problems with the first couple parts, but 
I kept watching it and kept watching it and was happy to watch four hours of that as opposed to two more half hours of uh, of High Desert. So take that as you will. And again, Acorn TV's Happy Valley, just just a really great show. And if you haven't watched it, you're in for a treat. It's also three seasons, six episodes, so very worth watching. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. They help spread the word of mouth. Come say hi to us on Twitter. We're always happy to hear from you. I'm at the fine print, F-I-E-N. She's at Snoodit with two O's. Let us know what's working, what isn't working. As Leslie mentioned at the end of our uh, interview segment, if you've got strike-related news and and or whatnot, her DMs are open. But if you have questions for future mailbag segments, and probably next week as we head towards a Memorial Day weekend, you know, give us give us some questions. We'll be happy to answer them. It'd be good to have a mailbag segment. We've been too busy to do it for the past couple yeah, of weeks. Yeah, let's, let's do it, Dan. Mailbag segment ahead of Memorial Day. Send us your questions. Send us your questions. Uh, you can reach us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the numeral 5, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.